0: knockback the retro and nostalgia podcast is brought to you by well you if you want to learn how to support our show go to patreon.com slash greetings and salutations welcome back to knockback my name is colin moriarty i'm joined as always by my brother dagan money moriarty dagan thank you for joining me today my friend how are you
1: which one of us is roger waters which one is david gilmore I was really thinking about this.
0: I don't know. You're Roger Waters. Ah, <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't say that. But yeah, it's that's fine. That's fine. He's very controversial these days. You know, he for is his politics. He is. Not that I'm sure, Not that I feel like he's saying very much. The, the one thing that bothers me about him more than anything is just the uh, his. Um he seems like a little anti-israel in my opinion oh i didn't know about this strikes me as a little strange i'm going to try to fix the exposure again here he's very
1: opinionated it. right where david gilmore just wants to talk about music he's just like can we just talk about music let's just talk about me i'll pick up you know ask david gilmore a controversial question he just picks up a guitar
0: and he's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's interesting i mean well obviously we're doing dark side of the moon today the 1973 seminal what pink floyd record I would say top five most famous records of all time mm-hmm. easily and uh, to me I, I, and we'll get into this I, I I find Pink Floyd so fascinating and actually really hard to pierce in my mm-hmm. opinion and I want I want to get into that in a little while but before we do welcome everyone to our retro nostalgia podcast knockback you can get it uh, ad free in a week early over on patreon patreon.com lastam media. We appreciate you merch over at lastdamedia.store if you like. Day we're doing a live show, as you know, and I usually don't try to inject timely things into our shows because this is not, not back as an evergreen show, but we're almost sold out. This is exciting. After, after a day. Yeah, that took it is no time at exciting. all. No. And it's a bigger venue than the Richmond one and much bigger than the one in Pennsylvania. So yes. So we are. Um, we're Houston excited. Yeah. So
1: represent oh, Houston here, represent.
0: Definitely. I'm excited. Houston's big. I've been saying this on all the shows. Houston's bigger than people think it is. Mm. I don't know if. It's the fourth biggest city in the United States. I don't think Pittsburgh really real Yeah, it really is. Oh, I didn't re- I didn't realize it was that big. Like the, f- the proper city, I think, is two plus million people. That's a lot oh, of people. That's There's a lot of put people. it in context. Sure. San Francisco is 700,000.
1: Is you know, it really um, it's less than a million?
0: Yeah. yeah. San Fran. Oh, wow. The Bay Area is much obviously much bigger. But yes, yeah,
1: Pittsburgh is like three hundred and ten thousand or something. It's like, what? Yeah, Wait, it's what? How could right. it be that small?
0: But yeah, I, I think Houston's we well, we have I think we conflate metropolitan areas in the United States yeah, with right. cities, right? right? Like Los Angeles, Los Angeles County two different things, right? Yes. L.A. County. Uh, half of America might as well be in L.A. County. But in but in Los Angeles, yeah, it's different. So. Um, so we're excited about that. I'm looking now we have to do this so we don't get for this particular module we're using for we're going through the venue, the Hobby Center in Houston and their website. We only get like periodic numbers. So okay. what we've been doing to figure out how many we've sold is just going and pretending we're going to buy seats <laughs> and then looking at how many seats are left available. And I would say we're brilliant, by the way. Um, maybe 10 percent left of the seats. Wow. You My. know how there's like, you know, you know, when you go to a real, this is a real theater. So when you go to a theater, it's all the seats in the front in the middle. Sure. And then there's the seats on the side, seats on the side. H and side. then and then you have the mezzanine, right? Of course. Pretty much everything on the floor is sold out. Everything in the middle is sold out. Almost everything on the sides is sold out. And now people are moving into the mezzanine. So unbelievable. Um, that must be so I'm not that.
1: surprised, but it must be so exciting for you because it's confirmation of fans literally everywhere right mm-hmm. like in a very specific locale there's enough people to fill that state that stadium i was going to say soon enough theater <laughs> venue whatever you know that we're must be, be like Dice exciting. Clay <laughs> playing msg
0: <laughs> someday man uh, someday no i it, it is i mean here's the 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 thing about our live shows and they're fun we're doing it's by the way it's going to be the most overrated games of all time so <laughs> we're each going to present our answers and i have I'm, I'm figuring this all out because what i want to make clear is that it, it can be a great game that you're talking about we i just want people to position about how it's revered right and if it deserves that level of reverence sure so it's gonna be a really funny and, and controversial show but for me yeah it's very it's nice to see we have fans all over the place they're willing to come see us that you know it's great for our business that people are willing to spend money of course and all of that but for me it's just a relief that i'm not going to lose any money <laughs> you know, like, every time we do these shows you have to put your money down like, sure. I, we have to get the venue then the ticket sales for people that don't know how it works that pays you back so you can charge whatever you want for your tickets. It's like you pay for the venue and then you can just charge whatever you want. Sure. And um, so paying for the venue up front, it's like, man, I hope people show up because I'm going to eat like ten thousand dollars or something like that. It's the same thing with <laughs> all of the merch that we bought. I'm paying up front for all the merchandise and um, then you have to recoup on the right. Backend. Exactly. We right. have to make it back. Right. Dude, I mean, we haven't announced it yet, but people that listen to knockback, I'll make you privy is like I paid for. We are publishing a physical video game soon like last stand is and i also paid for that out of pocket so there's like a lot of just scary shit happening and all i want is my money back
1: (laughs) (laughs) which of course is gonna happen but yeah it must be so rewarding for you just to kind of see that you know besides just being cathartic and a a financial relief just the fact that there's love everywhere to put it simply right are you excited very exciting i think it was i had a lot of fun with the Pittsburgh slash Butler PA show, that was a that was a really cool experience, and you know that was my fledgling outing. You know, I was a virgin to the, doing that sort of thing. So, oh. and the, the fans were so cool and nice, and like I, I, I talked about how polite they were. And
0: oh yeah, they're good people. You know, yeah. all,
1: th- what an awesome fan base across Last Stand Media. So yeah, man, and it's only you know it's gonna be here quick. It's only a few months away.
0: Yeah, totally. And uh, yeah, I'm excited about it. We have to start preparing for it. So thank you all for your support over there. Go on Patreon if you want to see if tickets are still available and come hang out with us that night, it'll be fun. And we're looking forward to that very much. But enough about that. How are you doing? What's going on in your life, my friend? Yeah,
1: everything's good. I wanted to talk to you about this. This dawned on me Um, something a little different today. I want to do a mini knockback episode within the episode, right? Keep it concise. But here's what I'm thinking. And here's the premise of it. Kyle, when is the last time you, and I'll put this out to the audience too, our faithful audience. When is the last time you guys watched a show, a series, a movie that you would categorize as delightful? Just delightful, right? And I'll tell you what put me on this path. You know, we're kind of in this 2022... We're in the eye of this media storm, right? This media frenzy. We have the subscription services, the cable channels, the YouTube content, the podcasts. There's so much stuff to digest, entertainment-wise, right? Ingest, digest, whatever. And you gotta kind of—you only have so much time, so much free time, so much you know uh, time where you could just relax, kick back, and enjoy something, leisure time. So. I've been consuming, just like all of us in nerd culture, consuming thing, Andor, right? Been watching uh, Rings of Power, mm. uh, House of Dragon. Well, what, do you think of, what do you think of these House series? Of
0: the, I didn't watch either of them, Andor. So you watch House of good. Dragon as well. So, okay. So you're watching everything. You're really I'm, up, I'm up on I'm trying to
1: keep up on everything. Yeah. I'm interested. Okay. You know, I was interested in all those things. I, I'm not, and I'm not speaking badly about any any of them. They're all fine. Like, I'm not head over heels about anything right now. Just so happens, but- They're all, they're all great, you know, but something about this constant barrage of stuff and maybe it's just my nature. It's got me like kind of going back frequently and just looking for something old that's new. Right. And again, maybe that speaks to me. I do a retro nostalgia nerd culture podcast. So I think it speaks to my personality a little bit, but I like to go back and find something I haven't seen. That's 10 years old, 20 years old, 30 years old, whatever, something I missed. And an an example of this right we got on this Stanley Kubrick kick when we did the Shining episode so put me down this Stanley Kubrick rabbit hole what haven't I seen of his found Barry Lyndon loved it right realized recently I haven't seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind in a long time big Spielberg head maybe I've only seen that movie once all the way through and it's been many years so went back and it was really fun to watch that again then recently something put it on my radar I'm not sure what it was I discovered Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Okay, 1969 western. After researching it, one Harold is one of the best westerns ever, top hundred American movies of all time, whatever. So I went in HBO. They were showing it, and basically the thing is, it's a little vehicle starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford, starring those two guys, still half young in the late 60s, right? And just a western thing about this group. They're kind of members of this group of bank robbers slash train robbers. And Paul Newman is the charismatic leader of this gang. And Robert Redford is sort of his younger, slightly younger protege. He's kind of like a quick draw gunslinging, deadshot dude. And then every member of the gang has like a specialty. There's like the demolitions expert who's like great with the dynamite, and there's the con man, and then there's the media-facing guy who's kind of like the charismatic guy that talks to the newspapers and kind of kind of props up the gang and and kind of spreads this mythology about how badass they are. Dude, the movie is so much fun. Action Funny banter, great characters. It's kind of a buddy movie where these are just like two best friends. There's a whole element in it where Robert Redford, who plays Sundance, who plays uh, the Sundance kid, he has a girlfriend and the girlfriend and Butch, uh, Paul Newman's character, are like best friends. It's just like there's so much warmth in it. You know what I mean? It's just like it's just like a good hearted, feel good type movie and it dawned on me i was just like wow like 20 minutes into it i was like this is delightful the whole formula the way it's playing out the, ca- the charisma of the two main actors even the bad guys and the whole the whole thing is they're finally they've they've done one too many train heists and this posse of badasses of like seven badasses is put on their trail to bring them to justice and every one of these guys is like an expert tracker, expert markman. So they're they Sick. finally met their match, and they're on the run, and they have to get to like they're trying to free like flee to Bolivia in order to get out of harm's way. These two guys. Do you think
0: this is kind of like a little? Do you think Kojima took inspiration from this? With, I think um, a lot
1: of people. I was thinking of. Um, Red Dead Redemption. I was thinking of sure, just sure. westerns
0: in general. I think it was just the villains, like just like this cast of villains. Like, where did that come from? Yeah. Who did that first? The colorful... Uh, you know what? G.I. Joe was definitely a big part of that, right? G.I. Joe definitely, but that... That came Sundance later. Is, yeah, that's yeah. 81, 82. Sure. Yeah, it's like, who... I think a think... Like I the, love that shit. I mean, oh, that was the That was part. the inspiration for our role-playing game is like, that's where it all began for the role-playing game we're making is like the fucking... Dope-ass villains. You know? It's so and video game, that whole formula. It is, it is. Formula. I love it. I was, so I, was, I always wonder, like, who did that first? Who was like, you know what, Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy's a great one. Yeah, and the comics, I mean, that was decades and decades ago. So right? maybe that's the one where it's like...
1: That's a good one. And film noir in general, maybe. Sure, sure, sure. Some, some sci-fi, earlier sci-fi stuff, whether it was novel or, you know, the campy B- movies or tv stuff but yeah you and you would really enjoy it and since you know i thought of it because since it probably most likely won't be a knockback episode it's something i could turn on to you and the audience to say look if you ever want to watch something that's just really good really solid and oddly kind of wholesome when you look at it, you're not enjoying it because it's wholesome but then when you kind of take it all in at the end and it culminates into a, a finished product you're like you know what that was kind of like something i could show my 10 year old like it wasn't that they're, you know, they're blowing up trains and there's they're shooting at each other and stuff like that, but there's something there's just something fun. the the tone that it's presented in is not horrific. it's 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 fun and funny mm. and humorous, maybe a little tongue in cheek or whatever. So yeah, man, I was just really and that, it dawned on me like you take in all this stuff and you may enjoy it, but what what could you really categorize as? When's the last time I saw something that I would say, wow, that was a delight? Like that was purely delightful. I'm not even sure what fits that bill otherwise.
0: I can't remember. I, was say, I don't I'm not even this is the sad thing is is that the word delight to me for my own taste mm. veers into comedy. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're delighted, right? Yeah. And I don't know I love comedy, but I don't know that I I try to explain this to the audience a lot especially on sacred symbols when we talk about games like The Last of Us where I try to explain I'm not sure that I'm always going in for fun or for smiles and laughs. So sure. In fact, I'm you I'm often going in for totally weird shit like sorrow and humanity and that sort of experiential thing. And um absolutely drama. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's so entertaining. Right. Exactly. So with delight, it's like, yeah, I, I think about the, you know, uh workaholics or mm-hmm. the uh, trailer park boys and all that stuff. Like, that's delightful to me. Veep. Those are like delightful, fun mm. shows. But then, <laughs> but then, you know, I think about stuff like Black Mirror, where yeah. Every episode of Black Mirror I watch, I have this feeling of complete dread the entire time watching it. And it, I remember watching, especially the one with the prime minister and all the first ones when, when it around when it came to Netflix and being, and being like, holy Christ, I don't even think I can watch more than one of these at a time. It is so crazy. And I'm going in for it. It's far from delightful. That's it's, true. It's it's challenging you and Pincing, you know, pincering you into certain positions. I, I don't know. That's why I think and we'll talk about that today, I think, too, with the record. It's just. I I think the reason I don't resonate with Star Wars and Marvel and a lot of this stuff today, although Marvel's fine, it's just there's just too much of these things is. What does it mean? Like, where is it supposed to be fun? Is it supposed to be meaningful or deep or? Fun might be a good like I think of James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy,
1: right? That's kind of delightful the way it's presented. Yes, it's action, it's superheroes, it's bad guys versus good, saving the you know saving the universe from s- a certain doom. But it's presented in a way that is a lot of fun. Maybe fun's a big part of it. And I even think of things like Black Mirror or something challenging. I love putting it that way or sci-fi or psychological horror or something. Sometimes the delight, even horror. Sometimes the delight could just be in a clever idea. It's like what we did Cabin in the Woods. That's kind of delightful mm. in a way because not only is it fun and twisted, but there's something delightful in just that it's its cleverness, its wit, right? So, but I think I think you said it. I think fun could be at the center of that where it's just like, wow, this is a lot of fun. Also, I had no pretense going into Bush, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, except for the two main stars, right? That's all I really knew going in, like I was going to get these two movie idols at the center of this production. And everything was kind of a surprise. Very formulaic, just a typical Western, just done with, with a certain amount of charm, you know? And I think that is largely missing from today's content because I think grit... Like you're saying, grit, drama, suspense, you know, painting with a w- with a dark brush, you know, type of thing is kind of the, fla- still kind of the flavor of the, I don't want to say flavor of the month, but you know what I mean. That's sure. still kind of the thing. I, you know, I see House of Dragon, it's kind of just picking up, tonally it kind of picks up right where Game of Thrones left off, right? It's like, it just cont- it's more of that, and that's not bad. You know, Game of Thrones is a work of art, you know? Not judging House of the House of the Dragon yet, but, you know, that's the, sort of where it's like, I guess Butch Cassidy was refreshing. Not only was it nostalgic because it's, you know, over 50 years old, it was refreshing.
0: Well, that's good. Yeah. And we, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll get to that film at some point on our show. But let's get into the topic at hand mm-hmm. today. Pink Floyd's 1973 release, Dark Side of the Moon, certainly their most famous record and like I said earlier, I think one of the most famous records ever made. I would say the most famous album art ever oh, as well. Man, can't wait to. Talk and, about uh, you know, I'm curious to what you. Think about this record and what you think about Pink Floyd generally. Earlier, I said that Pink Floyd is one of those bands that is hard to pierce like you have to. Sit and it's not, a, in my opinion, you don't put Pink Floyd on in the background. Pink Floyd's something you listen to. I think that's true with a lot of progressive rock. And. I remember growing up and being familiar with a few Pink Floyd songs you hear, Wish You Were Here, or uh, you know, Another Brick in the Wall, part two or whatever. And I went through middle school and high school and I never really was into them. It was just like, oh, and I know dad was into them. he put them on every once in a while. But it wasn't until I went to college that I really started to listen to Pink Floyd, and specifically when I was a sophomore at Northeastern, one of my roommates had that famous Pink Floyd poster of the naked girls. You know what I'm talking about? And it has oh, the al- they're they're painted yep. with the album art. Yep. And Iconic. I was that's a, that's an awesome poster, and I was smitten with it. Not because they were naked girls, but because it was just I was like, what is this album art? I don't know anything. I, I obviously recognize Dark Side and the Wall, but what is metal and animals and all of these different things? And so it was that year, it was 2004, 2005, when I started to really listen to Pink Floyd. And they became, I would say, one of my 10 favorite bands. I think that they, we've only discussed a few albums so far on this this show, and we're going to do more. But I would say that this is the band I hold in highest reverence that we've encountered so far, even more in some way than the Beatles. I think the Beatles are more important. Mm. But we were talking when we did Sgt. Pepper, so 1967, so six years before this, about how sophisticated that record was pre-computer, pre-computer aiding. We're in the same space here. 1973 is the same year the microprocessor is invented. So there is no computer wow. aiding here. And this is this album is an absolute seminal work of production. People like Alan Parsons and others had a lot to do with this record. And uh, Alan Parsons is awesome. I like the Alan Parsons projects project as well. I don't know if you I'm not familiar don't break a silence. Don't let me win. You know, oh, that's, that's Alan, that, Alan Parsons yeah, Project. Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, I love that song. <laughs> we recently watched Austin Powers too, and they—that's what uh, Doctor Evil calls like his latest nuclear scheme, or whatever. The I call oh, it the, the uh, Alan Parsons uh, Project. You know. Yeah.
0: And then Scott's like fucking doofus like that's.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I probably didn't even get that joke the first time I saw it. I don't that think movie. I did yeah.
1: either. Actually, I was like, oh, I guess that's
0: a band or something. We'll call it. The Alan <laughs> Possum's project, <laughs> it's such a stupid joke. <laughs> so, dumb. but the production level of this album, you know, capital record um, is. Through the roof, beyond the dark side of the moon, indeed, I, I, I listen. I listen to this album pretty often. And so in preparing for this, I took notes and all this, but I, I was like, I listened to it twice through and just took notes because I'm like, I know this album beat for beat so well, I don't even really need to get too crazy into it. And what I was reminded of is I listen to albums sometimes and I'm a little regretful. A good example is 1994's 311 record grassroots. Okay. The one your wife likes the most. Yes. Is very poorly recorded. If you if it's just it's not good quality, audio quality. It sounds great, but it's when you listen to it, it's like, man, why did you guys rec-? they literally recorded it? They like rented a house and did all these things it's like, oh, and you know, they didn't you know, normally and, do that. Right, exactly. Like studio. you want to be in a foam padded sure. fucking house. If you're going to go and rent a house and write songs and stuff, that's great. But you got to have a place to record. So there's all these unfortunate situations. And I go back and I listen to songs, too. Remember, I, I think I was making you laugh in the monkey with one of the monkey songs because there's like a, an egregious mouth noise in it. Like, <laughs> you know, and they, they just kind of had a they role with these it. things because it's all the live to tape, maybe even live to studio, yeah. maybe crossing over a few tape layers, whatever, on a four track. Analog, it was all yeah. analog. Yeah, this album. I don't think if it was recorded today would sound any better. When you listen to the cash register noises and all of that, you can hear the clipping between the, clip, the clips. That's about as bad as it gets. But when you listen to the space noise and the psychedelia in the album, um, a lot of the tape delay stuff and all of the tricks that they do, again, just like Queen and others would do. And we talked about that. I feel like you wouldn't actually, with computer aiding, have been able to make this any better. You can remaster it and remix it, but. It's fucking great. I mean, this sounds like something that was made with the help of a Mac and a huge soundboard. It really foam, does, you know? And it's and it, but it, it wasn't. It was. It a lot of it was recorded live or in segments and and tape delayed and put over on four track and. It's, it's incredible. Me. I mean, that's old. I'm sorry? It's older than yeah. me. That's old. That's right. That's that's old. right. Yeah, by nine. Yeah, it came out. You know, so you were you were but incubating at that point, <laughs> <laughs> and. So and I, it's funny, I wrote in my notes, mom and dad being 23 when this album came out. I mean, if this album would have broke me, I think if if I, I can't even. I still can't believe how good it is. And so I've, I've gone on and on to talk to me about Dark Side of the Moon and Pink Floyd.
1: Well, I love some of the stuff you said. First of all, I wonder how much this helped me develop in the womb, because I'm sure I was listening to this when I was in mom's bell. You know what I mean?
0: They might have been smoking a little weed when they were in the bell. It was a different were. time. They probably yeah.
1: were. Hence you know, everything yeah. <laughs> going on here. But, uh, I, you know, what also I love that you said early on is the fact that this is not, this is one of those rare gems that you really can't put on in the background. It, it won't let you. If you put this on and you try to write or try to draw or animate or clean the house or put your headphones on and mow the lawn, this is not going to fade to the background like a lot of music does. Like, you're not going to forget about it in three minutes. It just stays front and center. And like you said, like we talked about with Sergeant Peppers last week, it's all about piercing and exploring. What is this magic? Why is this so legendary? Why does it live up to that mythological hype? You know, and for me, the first thing I think about this all culminates in a very distinctive answer for me with not just this album, especially this album, but with Pink Floyd's catalog in general, but really where Pink Floyd starts with me is with dad. You know, it really immediately, I cannot think of Pink Floyd without thinking of dad. And, you know, dad for me growing up was categorized by stuff. And it was interesting for me growing up because dad wasn't around a lot. He worked, you know, he worked a job where he commuted, you know, an hour each way at the firehouse. And then he worked like a lot of civil servants during the time, cops and firefighters. He worked side jobs. The man just wasn't home a lot. I didn't see him a lot, but I idolized him. So everything about dad, I would try to decipher and discern and just everything he did and everything he listened to or watched, the people he talked to, the stuff he bought, everything about him, I would try to figure him out. You know what I mean? It was like all about like trying to figure out this man that I looked up to who was kind of mysterious to me. Because, I, you know, I, I loved him. He was very loving. When I saw him, it was hugs and how are you and all that kind of stuff, picking me up and giving me bear hugs and stuff. But I didn't get a lot of that. Like, I would see him maybe three times a week when I was little sometimes. So everything that he did was kind of like I kind of put two and two together. I added up all those components to kind of try to figure out who he was, who was this guy, you know. And I always thought about him with the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Sabbath was a big one. Um, Supertramp was a big one with him. Fleetwood Mac oh, yeah. was huge. Supertramp
0: rules. I so love
1: Supertramp. And everything, I would try to listen to the music and look at the album covers and just like, what what is he into, you know? Pink Floyd was at the top of the list, though. And Pink Floyd was a big one, not just playing at home, but he would play, play the cassettes in the car, in the car rides, whether I was with him taking a ride to the hardware store, or whether the whole family was going to dinner. Pink Floyd was in the background a lot when I was little in the seventies and eighties. And a lot of it was, I had realized early on, like without really knowing what Pink Floyd was. And also I have to say up until like through my twenties, Pink Floyd, their whole catalog and everything about them, the imagery, the music, the albums, the the wall, the movie, everything conflated into this one big thing. Like I didn't really know eras. I didn't know what album came first. Everything was just kind of like... Culminated into one legendary band with like a legendary status. And just this media just all formed. Like a certain sound, a certain psychedelia, poetry, whatever it was to me as a kid. And But I remember realizing like early on like oh this music is different it wasn't just flavor of the minute poppy Casey Kasem top 40 stuff that I would listen to in the car with mom for instance wasn't just songs about romance or love songs or party music like this was something deeper right you could tell like it, it was somber it seemed like a lot of it was kind of melancholy it seemed like they were they were saying something it was deeper it seemed more dramatic more serious And, you know, I realized eventually these guys are talking about things. It's a little darker. It's a little sadder. And that's kind of part of the attraction as a little kid. It's like, and with dad specifically, he's like, why is, why is he so into this? You know, that was a big part of like trying to figure out what does this mean? And I remember thinking too, here's my dad, right? Our dad, he's this big, tough, burly firefighter guy, jumps into burning buildings. He works with his hands. He's the consummate like, tough guy to me. He's solemn, he's kind of serious, but you know, he's listening to this music that's kind of tender and sometimes sad and emotional. It's like poetry and I remember thinking, it's kind of a weird thing to think think back to, but I remember thinking like, oh, like, you could be this, you could be a man and still be into this stuff that's sensitive, you know, and that's what Pink Floyd and, you know, again, like, watching him listen to the music, and listen to it in the car and turning the cassette case over in my hand and looking at the imagery and maybe reading the, about the players involved and stuff. Just trying to figure out, like, what's the attraction? Why, why is he into this? And why does it sound so different to everything else? And that was, my, that was my big thing. And then later on, finding out, like, probably in junior high school, watching The Wall for the first time and kind of exploring this thing of, like, this band. It wasn't just music. It was imagery, You know, it was, there was a visual component to it too that was so attractive. And I say all that, that I, I, you know, at the end of it, what I realized in listening to this album a few times again is I think what Pink Floyd has always brought out of me besides appreciating the amazing and timeless music and the brilliance of these guys and the quality, as you were saying, Kyle, but also I think what it means to me in one word is just the pure emotion. You know, this music makes me emotional, full on, Lump in the throat, chills, arm, arm hair standing on end. Like, that's what Pink Floyd does to me. And I realize it's kind of another version of the Beatles just with more gravity. It's less upbeat. It still has that same musical quality, maybe even more so. Like, is David Gilmour a better singer than Paul McCartney? Probably, right? But it brings everything that the Beatles have to another level of... I would say gravity, you know, I don't want to say necessarily serious, but maybe a more serious message, less lighthearted, but just something that's just timeless. And I think about not only this album, but the wall, which I love. And later on momentary lapse of reason is another amazing album. And of course, Roger Waters is gone by then Sid Barrett's long gone by then, but yeah, there's just something that there's just some magic. And I think it is, you know, like a, a dynamic, a Lennon-McCartney-like dynamic where you have Roger Waters with the poetry and David Gilmour with the musical prowess. You know, not just with playing, but with, you know, that that voice. You know, it's it's damn near angelic. And I, that was one thing for me, like, I came out realizing, like, David Gilmour is like... I, I could listen to him sing the phone book like he's, his voice is just besides being probably one of the greatest rock guitarists of all time, right? Just the ta- just the, the raw talent of this band and yeah, the the timelessness is is deserved. It's not you know, it's not a fake thing. Like people love Pink Floyd for a reason. You know, it doesn't go away for a reason. It's unbelievable.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I brought it up several times but to to talk about a little bit about um Roger Waters' is um, or I'm sorry, David Gilmore is uh, and his voice is just that that 1990 version of Com- Comfortably Numbs on this record. But th- that, that that version of that song is insane. Like I listen to it all the time because it is so vocally haunting. Like I can't even believe they can do that live. And they did. People got to go listen to that version of the that song community. is probably like a work
1: of genius, Comfortably Numb. But
0: really, I mean, that's yeah, it's kind about of them, I think, too, which is which is what's so interesting about yeah. it, you know? yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, being drugged up and drawn out as an artist and all that. That's a, yeah, we'll, we'll leave that for another conversation when we get the definitely, appropriate record. but Definitely. But for Dark Side Dig, I wanted to ask you also, how do you feel about progressive rock? I mean, do you like prog rock? Genesis, King Crimson, Dredge? I mean, are you into kind of space rock and, and psychedelia and longer songs and concept albums? I mean, is that does that speak to you more than one-off Tracks and because I think about my favorite band ever, obviously as people know, is 311. It's a rap rock band and a, an alt rock band, and they do their three to five minute songs, and they're all separated, no fade outs or anything, and they're all you know. But then you listen to a band like Dredge, my another one of my favorite bands of all time, and it's it's total prog rock. It's it's emotional and spacey. The songs all go into each other. There's a concept that ties them all together. I can take both and I like both, but I think what's what's so attractive to Pink Floyd is that it's the best version of what I'm discussing in, in some sense. Um, Dark Side of the Moon has been analyzed to death. We also know what a lot of the songs are about because they've talked a lot about it. So <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's I don't think it's I don't think it's fun to really go into what the songs mean to them. I'm, I'm kind of curious how you interpret it and how you interpret progressive rock generally. Is it is it something that's attractive to you? Because it's, it's one of those things, again, like when I listen to Porcupine Tree or like one of these prog rock bands, I don't, I typically don't put it on in the background. It, it requires more attention. And you were bringing up the kind of the cross media stuff with the wall later on towards the, you know, the late 70s and into 1980. Sure. Is it's so strange that bands have walked away from this transmedia stuff when transmedia is the biggest it ever has been. You think about the Beatles, you think about the Monkees, you think about Pink Floyd and the Who and a lot of people that were doing. Now, I think music videos did away with a lot of that. But it is interesting that they always had that in mind, which is why I think things like the Wizard of Oz connection and all yes. that were so captivating for people to people because they really felt like it was that was true. Because why wouldn't it be, even though it's not? So talk to me a little bit about prog rock. Are you a fan?
1: Yeah. You know, I like progressive rock and I like just rock having these separate genres and sub genres because I think there's room for all of that. You know, I love what you say about progressive rock demanding a little more of you. It's that's it's, a, it's a less of a casual listen. I tend to agree with that. But yeah, when I think of the bands that you listed off, you introduced me to Dredge, Love Them. Genesis is a, another great example. Love Them. And I think because these bands specifically Dredge, Genesis, Pink Floyd is, a, is probably the pinnacle as far as examples go. There's so much musical skill and talent behind everything that it's not a wank. You know what I mean? It's not like we're going to put this, I think a more, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to cast aspersions about the grateful dead or fish or something like that. Those are separate genres of music, but I think sometimes the psychedelia or the progressiveness becomes a gimmick, a gimmick, you know, it's a kayfabe. And I think with this type of thing, it's, it's these bands and these players at the helm and these choices it's a choice you know that's what they want to do it's it's storytelling via music there's oftentimes a visual component i think of dredge right there's a visual art background with these guys same with pink floyd i mean sid barrett was an art student a lot of these guys went to school for architecture like they have there's a there's a visual component that's just all-encompassing it's not just oral. it's also visual and I like that there's room for everything and all of the bands we're talking about too, they do have a certain, besides the musical talent, they all have a pop sensibility that's very appealing and crosses them over, maybe with the exception of Dredge, crosses them because I think they burned a little too bright and a little too fast, but it crosses them over into a top 40 cadence because they sound so good. It just fucking sounds good. You know to be beyond the concept beyond the message beyond the sophistication the avant-garde you know sort of experimentation and all of these things they're just fucking good musicians and that's what makes it so special and i think that's what makes it so accessible to people because just like the beatles there's something there's kind of something for everyone if you can't find something that you like in something like the beatles catalog or pink floyd or even genesis then there's probably that's probably something wrong with you.
0: <laughs> that I would makes agree. sense. It's, it goes into it goes into what we've said before when we kind of make fun of the uh. Not I don't think anyone would be listening to this episode, but the people that are like I don't really I don't like music or I like you know whatever. Uh, kind of, I'm like how is Matt music just a passive part of your life? I know, you know what I like that. It's very strange. 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 And you know what I think about is it, anthropologically is the discovery of music and how not that it has much to do with this, but I, I often think about how a note exists. A C note, right? Whittle this piece of wood into a tube, put little holes in it and calibrate it right. And you can discover the C note by playing that thing you just made. It it exists whether you find it or not. I think that bands like Pink Floyd discovered Sonic. Genius that people didn't know existed because. Think about the big bands. You know, 30 years before, love big band music. When people were like, we're getting, we're going to bring this drum kit in. It's going to be much bigger and louder. You know, that was like something new that people had to discover. But if you just played a tom, you could have done that for hundreds of years. It's just that no one did it. And with this, it's like, let's bring pianos in, which they've done you know, for decades. But now it's like keyboards, this whole synth thing, Moogs or, Moogs or Moogs. I think they're Moogs. Yeah. All of these different devices, these very prototype like keyboards. Let's bring in our alarm clocks and our cash registers and capture the actual sound effects. Let's and you have to kind of look at them and be like, not that this was their first record, it wasn't. But this was like their fifth record or something. But you look at it and You're like, that requires some level of trust. I mean, you expect your players to walk into the studio and kind of make themselves at home when they're making their record for a few months. And it's like, well, you got your guitars and you got your basses and you got your drums and your keys and maybe you got some horns and all of that. But they went well beyond that. And they really did. I think that that's what's so fun about it. I was looking at it before. I mean, mega, mega levels of tape effects in this. They had people just supervising the actual mixes, nonetheless, actually mastering it afterwards to make sure it was all done right, because, again, with no computer aiding, I mean, this this is expensive and it's hard. And I imagine nine out of ten great bands would go into a studio with that kind of mentality and come out with nothing. And somehow they came out with this amazing thing. So I think that does that resonate with you, like the discovery of music as in? It's kind of like the discovery of fire. It always existed. In fact, fire was almost certainly discovered by being in nature and then that people capturing it, keeping it going for really long periods of time, and then later discovering how to make it themselves. Right. Right. So but it always existed. It was always just there. And some wind probably whistled through trees one time, made that noise, you know, that you captured millennia later in a studio does that resonate with you or is that a little too like hokey and spiritual for you
1: no that's fascinating i mean i don't really ever thought about it from like an origin perspective but it is kind of like fire right and i love the fact of people with musical talent well you know it all comes down to vision right it's i mean 1973 this album it I can't even imagine from a March 1973 perspective how innovative this must have seemed and how avant garde and kind of weird to a lot of people, right? Like this probably really blew minds. I would always, I would love to go back in time and just be like a fly on the wall and really witness it from that era specific perspective, you know. But I love guys with talent and vision. And of course, like, You're standing on the shoulder of giants musically. Every musician would say that. I just watched that Keith Richards documentary again on Netflix. It's so brilliant because not only is he so passionate about music and talented, but he's so effusive and still affectionate and passionate about music and where it started for him. So if you look at the music that inspired Pink Floyd, whether it's like their contemporaries like The Beatles or Howling Wolf or Lead Belly or Mississippi Blues or in general, whatever... They were standing on the shoulder of giants they had their own ability and they were they but they wanted to strike out and make their own mark they wanted to evolve they wanted to experiment try something new try something different not just kind of being also ran or try to copy or emulate they were doing something innovative and that's why music progresses and the psychedelic era of the sixties into the seventies turn into this prog rock. And then later on we would have hard rock would turn into metal. And then eventually we would get grunge in the nineties. And, you know, you could see it with, with uh, historically black music too. And Motown turning, you know, blues, turning into Motown, turning into hip hop, turning into gangster rap, turning, you know what I mean? Like dance music, disco, like everything. It was all about that change in that evolution and building on, the, the era before or the century before, you know, all the way, dating all the way back to classical and so j- jazz is another big part of the conversation so I love that and the fact that it started somewhere and it was this little molecule or atom and then it just branched out you know, it's like that tree those, those roots and you know, that tree just growing bigger and bigger it, and this is a big part of, you know, Pink Floyd doing their thing and being so distinctively Pink Floyd, I think, you know, that's... They probably... They were the originators, and then, you know, then we would see plenty of copycats based on that. But they were, like, you know, just as important a conversation as the Stones and the Beatles and all of these, you know, all of these musical acts that came before. They're such a big part of the conversation for just being innovators. And it's also interesting to see their trajectory, Kyle, because... Like we talked about with the Beatles last week, they burned so bright and so fast and then kind of faded out like a supernova, right? They 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 they, they were so prolific and creative and wonderfully talented, but they they didn't last long. Pink Floyd lasted a lot longer. If you look at them found, founding the band in 65 and then Roger Waters not leaving until 85, they had 20 years. Of like them being all together now. Sid Barrett was already out by sixty-eight, but I mean by seventy, he was all but gone. Now I didn't realize Sid Barrett lived till two thousand six. That was news to me. That was insane to find that out.
0: Yeah, it's sad what happened with him because I think he was like a little crazy or something. Yeah,
1: I think. But he I think was... that that's where that's
0: that spirit of their original music comes from. Definitely. You know?
1: And you know they they also started out much like the Beatles, Top of the Pops. They were charting. They sound they had a much more sort of English. Uh, you know like I guess or what, what is that called like early boy band sound like think about you know early Beatles type thing.
0: Yeah top, top 40 kind of sound. Yeah. For sure. You know what I mean and then Evolved to something yep.
1: that was more you know that was more substantial I guess and bigger much bigger.
0: What's interesting about Sid Barrett too is that and I, I'm always interested in bands that do this it's not super common but it happens is that they just never replaced him. They just like he was the singer. And then now, and obviously like Roger Waters and Richard Wright were singing and stuff too, but he, they just were like, no, we'll just do it ourselves. Like they didn't even bother trying to replace him, which I find interesting and um, and notable. And obviously Sid Barrett has nothing to do with this particular record. And yeah, a really sad story. Very similar to Pete Best with the Beatles where it's like, man, that's, I actually feel way worse for for Pete Best because it seems like Sid Barrett didn't really give a shit.
1: Yeah, I don't know. They say he was. You know like he had multiple personalities and that he had these maybe mental ailments that dated back and then when LSD came into the picture and I, th- I heard stories like he did LSD for one week straight like every day for seven days or something and I think that conflicting with you know just being having those mental ailments I just don't think it was you know but he was so revered and so respected by these guys because he was a brilliant songwriter and They talk about his whimsy musically and that he just brought this really distinctive flavor. Plus, I think he was magnanimous. Like he was like a genuinely kind, loving guy that, yeah, they always kind of kept him as like an honorable, you know, member of the band, like, Mm -hmm. you know, an honorary member. And they, they, yeah, David Gilmore came in to kind of replace him. But, you know, as far as lead vocals, but eventually, but they kind of even ran side by side for a little bit, but supposedly he was just shot. You know he was just, and I don't know how much that was due to his mental like mental state maybe even dating back to when he was a kid or when he was born and then you know of course psychedelic drugs only making it worse
0: I, I do believe that the most brilliant people live on the edge like that the they can go one way or the other really something for about these people. that right yeah yeah it's like it's like Da Vinci sleeping like 15 minutes at a time for like years you know <laughs> that's insane but apparently he really did. He really lived like that. And. I, I think people that just they almost exist on a different mental level in yeah, some way. Yeah, and I think psychedelics, like the early psychedelics and getting into that, I think was a really I think it's still a real draw for people that think or believe and maybe are it's true that you find something on the other side. I mean, I love Sam Harris. I always talk about him and he's a huge believer in psychedelics. Yeah, A lot of people yeah. are
1: a lot of smart people. people
0: People really believe that you just, you unlock a lot of shit in your head by doing that, and I really want to go down that road. We've talked about that on the show. Like, I definitely want to. You do the, want to the do the biggest? That. Oh, I want to do acid. I'm like really terrified bad. of it. But it, and I, I always say it reminds me of um of Roger and uh yes, in, I always think of that in, in Mad Men, when, so which is so funny. They do that so communal
1: open, like everybody takes it together and yeah they're like a hotel or something i think it was cool it was cool. Yeah. yeah i always think of that yeah i mean there's something about there's something interesting about it like what's there like what what does what are those things whether it's psilocybin or lsd whatever it is the ecstasy what is it that it unlocks in your brain or opens up or channels that can't normally be accessed i don't know it's very mysterious but I could see that not only, you, like you're saying, these geniuses, whether it's academic or musical or artistic in some way, like they're haunted almost by their genius or whatever it is that they're pursuing, their passion or what they're talented at, they don't always seem like they're haunted by that or plagued by that. But then when you add the drug into that and seemingly in order to intensify whatever that is, thing that you're trying to access or perfect or whatever then yeah it it seems like it leads to uh it kind of can lead to disaster you know we've seen that with not only sid barrett but a lot of people a lot of famous people you know they just kind of um they i think they wanted to they wanted to leverage that thing for for something positive and then something negative came out of it in other words all
0: right let's get into some of these songs themselves there are Ten tracks on the record. I think at one time it was nine because "Speak to Me" and "Breathe" were one song. Oh, in the I, I record. read
1: that. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, but they they split them up because Nick Mason, I think, wrote "Speak to Me" and then "Breathe." Just like went right into it as one thing. So there's probably some you know the the money in non touring bands isn't who wrote the song. So there might have something to do with that as well. But I'm curious where you wanted to begin or if there's any songs in particular you'd like to jump into because I, I feel like half of the songs like "Speak to Me." On the run. I mean, on the run. We can talk about any color you like. These are instrumental songs. That's why I was saying uh, you can listen to them in the background, and that's fine. But it's funny. I have all the tracks on my. I have every Pink Floyd song on my playlist, and you. I just remove those interstitial in- instrumentals because you don't listen to them without the context of the record. Right. right. So I don't know if you. So with that said, I don't know if you want to discuss any of them. But I'm wondering what song might might. Ease, uh, ease us into a conversation about some of these individual tracks.
1: Well, I have to say, like I was talking about earlier, I was kind of ignorant about, you know, it was nice going into this album, into the dark side of the moon, and really exploring it as a front-to-back album. Because, again, like I, me in the past... Not being, you know, the Pink Floyd super fan and really knowing all the ins and outs and being an expert, like I kind of conflated their whole catalog and wasn't really. Besides, Momentary Lapse of Reason, which came out later in the '80s, and I was a big fan of because I remember when that came out and that was like a big event for Dad and I think how good and and rewarding it was for Pink Floyd fans because that music was you know, so good. I think about learning to fly. You think about uh, learning
0: to fly is maybe my like one of my favorite Pink Floyd songs. It's that, so good, a lot dude. of people, a lot of people consider that fake Pink Floyd though, because Roger Waters is not on that. Record. Yes. But I, but I, I don't know. I think it's fine.
1: Yeah. David Gilmour really picked up the slack. That song, Learning to Fly, I think now I'm too shy to do karaoke. But if I did, that would be the ultimate karaoke song to me. And, and brilliantly written. The
0: distance, living <laughs> off black. See, David Gilmore
1: (laughs) didn't need, I don't know who wrote that song, but David Gilmore didn't need Roger Waters because that's Waters-like writing. Um, Just as good as anything Roger Waters ever wrote, I would argue. But of course, I'm not the purest Pink Floyd expert that a lot of people are. But again- I'm with you on
0: that song. I love that song, man. Oh, it's so good, dude. Yeah, it's great.
1: And on The Turning Away, you know, like all those, just good shit and iconic tracks, but I always thought about it all together, like Pink Floyd, all the music, all the albums. I love another brick in the wall. I, I said in our earlier episode that that's probably my favorite song of all time. And but it was nice to break it down by album now. And but it was interesting to me when it. This really is a concept album. I mean, it really is avant-garde, especially from a 1973 perspective, with you know the sound effects and the conversations and the snippets of things interspersed with the actual music. And I thought it was really interesting to open up the whole album with this speak, this very short speak to me track with this kind of unpleasant cacophony of sounds. You know, you got the heartbeat and then the laughing and the screaming. It's very unsettling. It's also
0: teasing all the songs. Definitely.
1: It's it's definitely foreshadowing. Yeah, Mm. for sure. And, you know, but it is anxiety inducing and it feels like, I almost got the sensation the first time listening to it, like put my headphones on, quiet, really kind of to delve in. And it felt like running from something. It's not a very welcoming or inviting way to start an album, which I think is really part of the irony and part of the message, of course. And, you know, I think 20 seconds in, you hear little bits of dialogue with the F word. Like it's it's like, it's kind of jarring way to start the album. And then it sort of rolls in, to this really melodic, this chaos leads into this gentle, melodic, atmospheric song, piece of music in Breathe. You
0: yeah, know, it releases like, the tension. It's perfect.
1: It's unbelievable. It's really this whole album, and it's so indicative of what this whole album will do over the 10 tracks. It's just it's a it's an emotional roller coaster. It's so brilliantly crafted from track to track. Not only does everything blend so seamlessly and like you were saying, like pre-digital. Like this is all analog. This is expertly recorded and mixed and blended.
0: And they're still playing with stereo sound too, which is awesome. It's not Unbelievable. Mono. like they play with where it's going to be on their headphones and like where sounds go and the, the, in the, in the 360 degrees of sound. It's brilliant. I mean, if you, that's why you have to listen to it on headphones.
1: It's so thoughtful. Opinion. And if you know, you know, again, like on the David Gilmore bandwagon, if you know him and you know this song, like I feel like with breathe, like I cannot wait for David Gilmore's vocals to begin. It's so buttery smooth and that voice just envelops you like a warm blanket and just watching him record live too like even through the years as he's gotten older dude he is so, he sounds amazing like that talent really shines through it's not just in the recording studio it's not just a take that he got lucky like this guy could really sing i mean it's unbelievable and you know i just i feel like you get Just from the lyrics, it's fun to, because now, like you said, it's so, it's so picked apart. It's like a chicken carcass. You know what I mean? Like it's so picked apart. It's been so talked about. Roger Waters has been, he's not a very evasive interviewer. Like he'll, if he's asked, he'll say what it means. And, you know, I think he's said what it means so many times over that he actually contradicts himself. He's not that artist. He's not that magician who keeps his tricks to himself. Like he he'll talk about it which i think is kind of an interesting choice it leaves him a little less mysterious yeah but I again agree. very opinionated but you know i think it starts with that with that breathe song i, I put breathe with a little check, check mark because it's one of my favorite tracks on the album and again like that's what i get from pink floyd it's an enjoyment similar to listening to the beatles or any music that we love but there's it, what it evokes is emotion it gets me emotional. Like that's immediately where I go with Pink Floyd. And that's very, very apparent in a track like breathe where it's like, I just go to this emotional place. And like you were saying, you just want to listen to it. You don't, you just want to sit there and ingest it. You don't even want to do anything else. There's very little music I could think of that. I feel that way about. So, you know, it's very special.
0: Yeah. Breathe is cool. It's, it's quintessential space rock to me, you know, from the very beginning. You're kind of like lift, like lifting up the two guitars kind of dueling a little bit. You know, the lead guitar with the wah wah pedal and just the just playing the chords in the background. and It's just nice. And, and I, I agree. This is where this, the this song starts to take real meaning. Long you live and how you fly and smiles you'll give and tears, you'll cry. And all you touch and all you see is all your life will ever be. I mean, come on, man. I've never written anything like that in my life.
1: Unbelievable. The poetry, right? I mean, these guys are, that's the thing, like, and maybe this is where, I, I'm sure this this started in the 60s with people that were more enlightened on music, but that, this had to be a thing where it crossed over into a mainstream popular knowledge that these guys are poets, you know what I mean? Like these guys are Robert Frost like what's there between Emily Dickinson, Robert Frost and, you know, Roger Waters. There's I totally, there is agree. None. totally you know what Totally agree. I mean? <laughs> like yeah. it's unbelievable. So and, you know like run rabbit run dig that hole forget the sun when at last the work is done don't sit down it's time to dig another one. It's not just there there's a drama there, but there's a there's a it's pretty pessimistic. It's almost fatalistic. But there's something Definitely. honest about it, you know, and, and it makes you be, I think that's the other thing about Pink Floyd. There's something about it that makes you, if you're listening, that makes you feel introspective. You're automatically introspective. It's not just good time music. It's it's music to sit there and let let it wash over you and interpret the meaning. That's what it's there for. You know, you kind of enjoy it like poetry, but the perk is you have this this melodic music over it so it's it's enjoyable at the same time it it sort of is like the audio version of dark of of uh black mirror right i mean in a way it kind of
0: is no i agree it's there's something very tense and unsettling about this record even though it's very little distortion or anything it's not it's not aggressive in any way it's aggressive in its um in my opinion in its subject matter i mean like we were saying the last half of breathe run rabbit run dig that hole forget the sun and when at last the work is done don't sit down it's time to dig another one and then for long you live and high you fly but only if you ride the tide mm. and balanced on the biggest wave you race towards an early grave I mean this is it's pretty obvious what the song about I, I, utility so they don't, it's it's amazing and it, and it sets the cadence for because they're talking about work and then they're gonna talk about time and they're going to talk about money and they're going to talk about all these different things. And you start and and the whole everything is starting to come together. So let's go. We have on the run, which is an awesome instrumental. But we go on to time and this it's so Mm. funny. Because you were talking about dad and you were talking about. Understanding the songs and what I love about music. You know, how many times have I listened to time? I don't know. Hundreds of times in my life, right? Probably just in the background on the car and listening to it intentionally. All the rest on my playlist endlessly listen to this record a bunch of times. And it wasn't until a few months ago that I really that it really hit me. I know what I always knew what time was. But when I was listening to it the other month, actually, and I, I texted dad and I was like, uh, I never really thought about one of the particular verses. And it's this one tired of lying in the sunshine, staying home to watch the rain. You are young and life is long and there is time to kill today. And then one day you find 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. That's a weighty lyric.
1: Again, we're talking about the
0: same lyric. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. And I can relate now. When I was 20 or even 30, I couldn't really relate. But now I do feel like time is slipping through my fingers. Now I do feel like. I have wasted a lot of time. Time, as we always say on Sacred Symbols, is an important currency and you have to be important and you have to be really. I think it's good to waste time I think it's good to sleep in. I think it's f- totally fine. I think it's great. But the things you really want to do, the things you really want to accomplish, places you want to see, people you want to meet, experiences you want to have. I, I, I feel like time is truly of the essence and, th- and that those lyrics really barreled me over recently I know that whole song lyric for lyric for many years but and and you know what it means but now I understand it I guess is what I'm saying now I have the appropriate wisdom to understand time and what's funny is that time was written by men what more than 10 years younger than me with a lot of wisdom so yeah talk to me about time where do I even start with this song it's it does what the
1: best tracks on this album do and it i think what the best pink floyd songs do in general is it challenges you and says we're gonna hit you off with some some you know harsh life lessons here but you're gonna listen you're gonna sit there and listen because it sounds sublime you know what i mean like they do that like you're gonna keep that fanny planted in that seat and you're gonna listen to why life is short and seems futile and like that you're wasting time and all the struggles, but you're going to, but listen to this melody. You're going to sit here and listen to it. And, you know, I love the way like it comes off of on the run. Again, the way the tracks blend together, the rumble of on the runs explosion leads into the sounds of the ticket clock and, and the alarm bells. And again, that concept album, the sound affects the meaning, but it gives way to that, some music that sounds all at once welcoming and of course melodic, but also foreboding and like a little bit sinister, right? Like, Oh shit. Like what, what am I in for now? You know, type of thing. And then Gilmore's vocals, of course you're waiting for them to kick in. You can't wait to listen to it, but, and it's characteristically smooth and buttery and sublime and it sounds great, but I love this Gilmore because this version in this song, he goes a little harder than usual. It's a little more throaty. It's a little louder, and it's a little more aggressive. Um, if you listen to him, you know, in, in his, at his smoothest, it's a little more... There's a little more rock in there. And I think that's what makes it really stand out. And then, of course, like, the the track really struck me when I was trying to articulate it and describe it. It's soulful, and it's steady rocking at the same time. You know, and it has... It has the elements, it has the layering, it has the building that, you know, and and Pink Floyd's sort of pop resonance that, you know, they know just how to build a song. They know just how to build that appeal. And, you know, again, the poetry blended with those sing-along arrangements and the melodic vocals, it's that substance and the message combined with the radio-friendly appeal. You know, like, it has... Everything it has. Richard Wright, I think, sings backup vocals. It has some ba- female backup singers. It has that badass guitar solo. Like the song has a little bit of everything. It's just a great rock song. And again, that that substance. It just has. It has everything. Like I, I, I honestly think this is probably one of the best rock songs of all time. And then when you get when you really get into the lyrics and the poetry. You know, it's, again, like, I don't really want to hear, like, I appreciate Roger Roger Waters' is genius, but I don't really want to hear him talk about what everything means. I'd rather kind of figure it out myself. But one fascinating thing I did hear him say is he had, as a kid, I think he was in his late 20s, he was approaching 30, and he had this epiphany moment of, and I think I think this idea is a lot of what this album is built on. He had this epiphany of, like, you know, you go through your youth, your teens and your 20s, and you're building your life. You're building towards being a certain thing, arriving at a certain place. And then he woke up one morning literally and was like, I'm here. Like, I've arrived. Not just as a famous musician, but as an adult. Like, there's no more journey. I'm at that place. There's no more, you know, like, uh, for right or for wrong, for good or for bad, like, that journey is over. I'm not a kid anymore, in other words. You know, I've, um, that that growth, that evolution has, has stopped. You've already, you're already here and now the clock is ticking. Whether that's expectations or what you want to do or, you know, mastering your craft or, you know, starting a family, whatever that is. And, you know, I think that coupled with just the anxiety and the downside of celebrity, of fame, having money You know, all of these things, Um, I know a lot of it was about the anxiety of travel and that pressure, that constant touring, being afraid to die in a plane crash. Like they say all these things, but that when you listen to it, it, it sounds genuine because that really does all come out in the music. It feels like that.
0: Yeah, well said. I think time is just an existential crisis of a song. It's just it's beautiful and it is haunting and it's got that famous Pink Floyd structure of dueling lyrics and dueling guitars and waiting for one guy to come and then the other. And it's a really wonderful song. And I just I think it's truly a haunting song. Every year is getting shorter. Never seem to find the time. Plans that either come to naught or half a page of scribbled lines. I mean, this is (sighs) incredible writing. It's fucking
1: amazing. Timeless. I mean, that's never going to get old. That's just good. That's just brilliant writing.
0: Yeah, this is good English writing. I mean, and, and and I think, again, with all of the different subjects and we'll get into the next one soon uh, that they deal with timeless as well. What about a uh, great geek in the sky? Do you have anything to say about this? This is uh, technically not an instrumental, but there's really no lyrics in this. This is uh, Claire Tory, apparently soul vocalist. And uh, yeah, I was actually interested in because I was looking into this woman and I had always assumed that this person was black, but I don't think she is. I did too. She's, she sounds black, but she's not. She's indeed not anything to say about Greek and gig in the sky. And then they, they kind of sprinkle her vocals throughout the rest of the record, like in the second side. If you're listening to the record, this is the end of side one.
1: Yeah, I think I didn't know much about this song. I I don't even know that I remembered this was a track, but think about just think about how inventive and experimental it is to say, you know, what we're not even no one's nobody in Pink Floyd proper is even going to sing on this song. We're just going to recruit this really soulful female singer. I think she was 25 years old at the time. So how do you have such a deep, soulful voice? How do you have so much soulfulness at such a young age? I mean, that's real talent. And just told her to, to kind of, you know, improvise there was there was no lyrics there was no decipherable lyrics so i think i heard a story of her relating like in the booth like she was trying to say words at first like oh yeah baby like just kind of improvising things and they were like no like no actual lyrics no english lyrics just make noises basically and then she does that and when you listen to it there's sort of an emotional trajectory to it like it goes from I would say sadness and longing to like desperation back to sadness and maybe like a really kind of somber surrender at the end. And she does all that just by making, just by singing noises. It's pretty, it's pretty in, in, it's an incredible idea and very bold to put that on the album. But for her to carry that off successfully is pretty amazing. And then and then integrate it into a a part of the album that makes sense and it does flow. You know it is a, it is a nice connective tissue between the the two uh, book-ending tracks around it. So you know who what other band would have done something like this in the early seventies? You know it was pretty uh, it was it was pretty ballsy, and I you know I like that about it, and I like the the fact that it kind of they brush their ego aside, like they don't have to be on every single track. It doesn't have to be Gilmore and. Right and and waters on every single thing, like they could kind of make way for an idea. It was more of the idea, you know. That's the i thing, like that's the thing of like the power of an idea. It's not just the musicians, it's not just the craftsmanship musically. It's like it's a concept.
0: Yeah, and it, it introduces the concept in, in my mind to this album of death. Mm. I mean, obviously suggested by the name as well. But some of the backing vocals too, and then we get to the second side if you're listening on a record. This doesn't matter for us in the digital age, but money (laughs) is the first song. Now, this is probably the most famous song on this record. Think so. I would say maybe this one or the next one. This I mean, so I in looking at the record, it's pretty funny because they're kind of it's kind of telling you just through the very, you know, some let me back up. Some bands use very sophisticated or weird titling. That means nothing. And with this one, it's like money, time. Breathe us and them like like, oh, oh, you know, (laughs) it's it's just telling you over and over again what everything's about in my mind, which is cool. So it doesn't it doesn't leave too much to the imagination, whether you like that or not. But money is a sophisticated song and maybe the hardest song on the record as well. It's the song that kind of especially in the bridge gets a little crazier. And a little more distorted, but. All about consumerism and the chase for the dollar. Now, I am of the mind and I don't really know how you feel. I've said this before. It's the Ben Affleck quote from Boiler Room. Anyone who is anyone who says money is the root of all evil never had any. I love that line. Money is a good thing to want. I think money is a good thing to chase and to have to use judiciously. I, I respect people that work hard and make money and do good things and stow it away or live a good life or whatever. I think that that's an aspirational sort of thing in my opinion, but it's a thin line. Like we were saying between insanity and creativity, there's a thin line between what I would consider to be a normal chase, like the rat race, as it were, and then a sheer obsession with the bottom line and all that. And I think that this song doesn't really deal with that, but it kind of reduces everything to one category. But I love this song, especially because it's about gratuitous wealth. Sure. He says, I think I'll buy me a football team. I think I need a (laughs) Learjet. I mean, it's about excessiveness. I don't think they're even making fun of themselves. They're rich at this point before this record comes out. So they're not even really talking. I think they're talking more. It reminds me a little bit of some dredge songs and others that are about record labels. And it feels like maybe this song is about the people that. Pick apart the artists and live off of them and all that as well and maybe the people that they've been around since that seems so antithetical to their whole artistic nature. So Mm. I I don't know exactly. I I, and again, I know that there's been crazy analysis of of these songs. I haven't read any of it, so I don't I don't actually know much of it. But that's kind of how I always take it. But again, we're talking about money we're talking about work. We're talking about life. We're talking about death. So, yeah, now we're on money. What do you think about this? Yeah. Big
1: part of life. Right. And yeah, I agree with you, man. Like it's it's so much more fun to decipher it for yourself rather than go in and explore like what's been said to death. But you know for me like this song even as a kid like this was always the levity of Pink Floyd for me and especially looking at it in context with all the tracks like this is the levity of the album for me I always thought it really was it always struck me as like this tongue planted firmly in cheek definitely playing a part and making a statement about money and you know the obnoxiousness of it but It always seemed a little hypocritical to me, too, because now you got this band, this famous band, these guys mostly still in their 20s that are already millionaires. So, yeah, it's easy for you to make fun of, right? Type of thing, type of element. And then I realized and I think, again, like I made the mistake of listening to Roger Waters one too many times and he was saying like, no, this was actually I thought this was really cool and honest, though, actually, he was like, no, this was about me like giving in to capitalism, kind of fancying myself a socialist, getting wealthy and then realizing, like, I'm no different than anybody else. I want the material things. I want the Bentley. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, being like, you know, I am a hypocrite. You know, now that I have the money, it doesn't seem so evil type of thing. Which, you know, I think is really funny. And I think, I don't know. Like, to me, it's of the musical interludes in this, and the musical tracks on this album, I think it's the weakest one, you know? And I think... It's interesting that it was, I think, Pink Floyd's first hit in the U.S. I think it charted at like in at like number seven or something. It like went up. It went up pretty high in the top one hundred. And you know, but I, I mean, I always loved it that it seemed like Pink Floyd doing a bit of humor. That's what it always seemed like to me. Like it's like making fun of the rich, making fun of being wealthy, and maybe making fun of themselves, which is kind of cool. I kind of like that self. You know, that's a uh, self-evasive type thing. But, you know, the other thing too is what I wanted to ask you about is that saxophone. Hmm. Helene was like, you know, I was talking about it with Helene. We were listening to it a little bit last night. And I unplugged my headphones. I was like, listen to this track, that track. And she was like, you know what? Sounds, the sax sounds a little dated to me. And I said, no, but you got to realize this is 73. The sax wouldn't become a pop music sort of mainstay or like a specific style until the eighties. So this wouldn't be, this wouldn't sound like, you know, a top forties, I don't know, Whitney Houston track with saxophone. Right. It was even,
0: it was even Supertramp That was one of the bands in the late seventies that began. Getting that's a great example. As well. yeah. yeah. So
1: it wasn't really, they were kind of pioneers of that. And it might even be David Gilmore playing the sax. I saw him playing the sax in an interview. He's quite good at it you know let me look at the
0: let me look at the liner here dick parry plays the sax okay so it's not C. gilmore dick yeah. parry is an english saxophonist he has appeared as a session session musician yeah he's in a bunch of shit but um i agree with you i, I think that that accompaniment that horn accompaniment is awesome especially because it's in us and them as well so there's like a little bit of back-to-back sax playing and a little bit of a tether between those two songs. But uh, it's fun too. like,
1: Like, do do you, sorry to interrupt you, but do you think like in any great entertainment, a novel, a movie, a song, an album, like you need a little bit of a break from the heaviness. You need a little bit of levity. I wonder if that was intentionally a way to keep something a little more upbeat, a little more playful in all of this, you know, sort of, weight on your shoulders type thing. I, I, if it was intentional, it's very smart to be. Yeah, well,
0: it, that's why I think track order is so important on these records, because this is the beginning of the next, yeah. of the B-side. Well said, know? right, of course. And it's interesting to hear about how it's kind of more self-effacing, because he says, money, it's a crime, share it fairly, but don't take a slice of my pie, I guess. <laughs> you can kind of see it that way, that he's talking about himself. I always interpret this as him talking about someone else, but I'll take his word for it. All right. So the next track seven or six, depending on the version you're listening to us and them, this is my favorite song on the album. And probably outside of maybe momentary lapse of reason, my favorite song by, or not momentary lapse of reason, um, learning to fly from momentary lapse. of Reason is probably my favorite Pink Floyd song, period. Mm. So again, a song lyric that, or a, a, a song title that tells you what it's about. And This song is symphonic and beautiful with beautiful choral builds up buildups and and um, a complete metaphor, obviously, for the social classism that was prevalent in Britain is prevalent here as well. It's much more or was much more built in in the British society from its core, of course. But I feel like the the lyric, the specific lyric that always sat with me since I was first heard this song is um forward he cried from the rear and the front rank died I've always just taken that with me and it it's brutal and vivid and illustrative what do you think of the song us and them
1: I I agree with you I think this is one of their best it's probably easily my favorite on the album there's so much to say about this song like I have to tell you every time you know it starts off with that very church-like organ. But every time, about 35 seconds in or something, that the guitar and the drum and the piano kicks in, I get emotional every time I listen to it. And then, you know, this is a classic example of a pop song, specifically a Pink Floyd song, building, like the layering. And you could talk about it, talk to this more as a musician, Kyle, but for me, like, just how rich of a production it is, how much texture is in it. And I think that organ that the that the song leads you into, that the song starts with, you get that organ, and again, it feels like church almost, very reverent but a little somber, and then it builds with that piano and the guitar and the drum kicking in, and then it builds again with Gilmore's vocals coming in. But I think you're already primed for like an emotional release, just the way the song builds in, in in intensity and melody. It's so interesting to me. And, you know, the other thing that I realized about the song is besides it being brilliant, I love the irony between the previous track with money and then us and them, you know, it's kind of a, t- it's kind of two different takes on the same type of thing, you know, which is really interesting to put those juxtapose those back to back but one thing I realized and again maybe you could speak to this more because you have much more musical knowledge than me. They do the a weird thing with this song. Like a lot of they do a lot of quirky unexpected unexpected little things that surprise you and subvert your expectations a little bit. It's very it seems very sophisticated to me. It's kind of ingenious. You're so captivated by the whole song and you get taken in and then you get You get kind of surprised by these little unconventional touches like there's for instance there's a part of the song where he's like you know you have this echoing of Gilmore's lyrics he's like up 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 and then with an answer to that there's a little piano tinkle and then he does it with down it's down 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 and you're expecting a response and nothing happens there's, there's no like call and response with a piano, like you expect like a low piano chord there or something. They do a lot of things that keep you on the edge of your seat musically. It's really weird because you think you're being placated by the melody and how smooth everything is and you're kind of going along for the ride and then they're doing things that they're doing the opposite of what you expect. It's Again, it's very sophisticated. It's not formulaic at all. It seems like they're even going out of their way to do something that's a little more inventive and a little less expected, a little more unexpected. And I really I really thought of that musically. I was like, wow, that's pretty ingenious. And maybe that's part of the reason why this song is held up as, you know, a masterpiece. Because of those little things, how thoughtful it is.
0: It truly is. I, I just I, I've always been smitten with us and them and just the the poignancy of the lyrics and how a lot is the Pink Floyd delivers a lot with with actually very few lyrics. Not not that they they don't have a lot of lyrics, but they they just there's a lot of punch in what they write. And there's a line in us and them where he says with without and who will deny it's what the fighting's all about. I mean, that's brilliant. Again, brilliant writing and it's it's the summation of the whole song. Really is. And uh it, it's a, it's a, to me it's always been a plea about war, about how easy it is to sacrifice other people's lives and livelihoods and all the rest. And I think that this is a a lesson still very much at the tip of our tongues today with class. I always say that. I, I mean, I, I, everyone knows and rolls their eyes at this point when I say it, but this obsession with race and sex and all of that really betrays the true fundamental underlying problem of class and the haves and have nots, which is the real issue. And the song speaks about those people, I think, a little bit as well. And how easy it is for in this vivid case, a general like figure having, you know, pushed, you know, saying forward from the rear. You know? Yeah.
1: And that's a great point, man. Like, yeah, the the officer and the cannon fodder soldier, right? It could be right. about it, race. It could be about monetary divide, east versus west, like all of those things.
0: It all applies. Yeah, because it's the, the important part of that line or that line, is he said, it's not that he, he says forward, he cried forward. He cried from the rear and the front rank died. Yeah, exactly. that's that's, I think, the important. Yeah, the us and them is always us and them has always meant this. That's an interesting song where it's always meant the same thing to me. Time, for instance, like I said, kind of overcame me the last few months. Us and them hasn't hit me in any way different. It's a staunch class song and i think maybe even a staunch anti-war song all right we're getting towards the end now you are indeed we have uh, any color you like which is uh, another instrumental very futuristic very space age and i don't know if you have anything to say about that before we move on to the the, the last two waters songs roger waters written and sung songs so, yeah and we come to brain damage and eclipse what do you think about the end of this record how the um it ends pretty quickly. I mean, any color you like is three minutes and change, but then brain damage is under four minutes and then Eclipse is barely two minutes the, and the whole thing's up. I think it's a nice summation. Personally, I wonder if you have anything to say about these songs.
1: Yeah, I mean, any color of starting with any color you like. It's This is one I didn't even remember. So it was nice to go in and to just kind of get a, get a dose of you know, and it's probably the other track on the album besides Money that's a little more upbeat. You know, it's funky, you got the medley of synth and synth and the drums and the guitar. And you know, you realize too like obviously Pink Floyd is known eventually for their psychedelic offering. So, you're getting one of the granddaddies of the psychedelic instrumental here. You get a you get a, a truly psychedelic dose of you know what psychedelic music sounds like with that with the, with the synth with the way the music is all integrated and you really can close your eyes during the song and just see colors even without the lsd like it really does have that that long lasting effect and you know you realize like yeah this is what this is what the psychedelic music this is kind of the the foundations you know what i mean like this is kind of among the earlier offerings of A band that would be considered a psychedelic band that eventually becomes more of a progressive rock band, right? They all kind of grew into that. And then with Brain Damage, yeah, the last two tracks with the Roger Waters taking center stage on the lead vocals for once, at least on this album. And, you know, what I love about Brain Damage specifically, and something I can't think of, although I'm sure there are other examples, it calls up the album title in the song, even though the song, you know, this is not the title of this song which is really cool i think that's really a nice reference to the album and to the whole overall you know theme and and message if it's a message album and the way that funky futuristic sound of the hammond organ you know doing some kind of i don't know cosmic vibration thing and then plays against the straight up church organ in other sections of the song, so you have this kind of blending of music that sounds religious and music that sounds futuristic. It's really funky again, again. It just sound. It must have sounded so avant-garde back then because no one was doing anything like that. Where it was like blending these two genres of music in one three-minute song or whatever, and then intercut with the snippets of laughter and conversation woven in, like it was, you know, pretty. Pretty interesting. Like again, I would love. It's not. It's one thing to talk about it now, when it's been talked to death in many ways, but to go back fifty years and really kind of get a dose of this and what people must have thought of it when they got that minty vinyl out of the case and put it on the turntable for the first time. It must have been a trip.
0: I imagine. I, I. I'd like. I remember. I wonder if mom and dad remember mm. specifically what it was like to listen to it at the time and all this. And and I totally. I totally agree. And I. I wonder what you think just kind of exiting our conversation, a few things I wanted to ask you about, which was, um, what do you think about the dark side of the moon? Like, isn't it interesting? Just generally speaking, the real dark side of the moon. Isn't it fascinating that we never even saw it until the 60s? It's
1: incredible to think of
0: that. Like what? And I,
1: you know, I didn't miss that by that much. The thinking must have been so different. You know, there was so much more fantasy and so, And, you know, very little knowledge involved back then. Which is, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, it's such an interesting perspective. I thought of something, and I don't know ultimately if this is what it means, but if you think of the dark, you think of the moon, right? You think of the loftiest of heights, you know, the highest you could ascend. So you think of conquering the moon, getting up there, the ultimate adventure, achieving success, right? Is that what this album means? Is it the dark side of all those things? Getting to this place, getting to the the highest you could go, achieving the ultimate, you know, the ultimate of things, the ultimate success. Is this the... And and this album is talking about, is that what it means? You know, the dark side of all of that. I don't know. But it is interesting to think about. I never thought of that before. Again, it's like... When you grow up with something and you're exposed to it for decades, and then you finally realize, oh, shit, is that what... Not, not only the dark side of the moon is a fascinating thing, or the way the moon waxes and wanes in the sky, and we always see a bigger chunk of light versus a smaller chunk of black and vice versa. That is fascinating on its, on its head. But if you think of a deeper meaning, is that what they're saying? You know what I mean? Is it, is it the dark side of fame, money, wealth, success you know what I mean? Always the pressure of having to build, the pressure of having to appease the audiences, travel, all the downside that comes with being wealthy, you know, the hangers on and all that kind of thing, like dealing with management and record companies and spouses and always being gone and having to fly everywhere and run for airplanes. Like I, I, you know, it finally dawned on me. It's like, Oh shit. Is that what that, is that what that means? These guys are poets. It must mean something, you know, Um, Or is it just what you said, you know, just kind of the dark side, the flip side, the mysterious side, um, the side we never see, you know, that type of thing. Either way, there's something
0: there's something in in the song Eclipse, I mean, suggested by the name of the song. But if you look at the lyrics as well, just suggesting that the moon is some sort of interference. Like they go through all of these things, everything, you know, basically, and then Everything under the sun is in tune, but the sun is eclipsed by the moon. <laughs> it's so, so
1: fucking good.
0: Dude. So it's like a very tw- it's like Twilight Zone ish in, in its delivery almost, which I like. And I wanted to ask you about one other thing which comes from the song time. I always internalize this line and I wonder how you interpret it. OK, hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. What do you what do you think? What do you make of that? What do you think of the English like? Are they a down? do we look at them as a gray and downtrodden people? I guess. In the 20th century, British, the Britain has really changed a lot in terms of losing its status and it's no longer an empire and it's kind of decaying and being reduced to just its home island and all of that. And we think about the Blitz and World War Two and the desperate times with the Nazis and, of course, World War One. And. I don't know, I I just wondered what I love that line. And as a. An American I always kind of kind of fixated on that that line for some reason you know this is great British rock of course so what do you think about that line on hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way it's so interesting
1: I love you know I love everything we talked about this with the Beatles too I love how English and British Pink Floyd is and how unapologetically that shines through you know that that place where they're from being that thing of those people like that's really a part of the music, I think, and part of the part of the emotion, part of the resonance, part of the writing. I think the dynamic. First of all, I have to start with this. The dynamic between the Americans and the English is one of the most interesting dynamics on the planet. I think when you think of the history, when you think of how our relationship started, how America sprang out of, you know, out of England in you know, uh, and, and, you know, in a, in a bloody way, in a violent way and everything like that. And the friendship that's been formed over the last hundreds of years and that sort of, it's kind of like the English and the French, right? That grudging friendship. It's like, oh, the English, they're dour, you know what I mean? Oh, bloody Yanks, you know what I mean? And the French and the English, there's, there's a friendship at the core of it, but there's, there's a playful, I don't know. What you, what you would call it. there's like a, there's a, well, how, would, how would you even word it? There, there's some sort of playful banter or something at the core of it where it's like you make fun of each other for certain things, right? With the English, I guess I would take that line as, I don't know, like putting a brave face on something and picking up and doing what you have to do despite, the negatives, you know what I mean? Like kind of feeling negative, kind of feeling pessimistic, kind of feeling, not feeling good about certain things, but having to go through the paces anyway, you know, having to live life anyway, having to live and work and pay bills and going through the grueling nature, the drudgery of life or whatever. But I guess it could also speak to the English, the, you know, the English is the English people's reputation for being, I don't know, being cynical, right? Being a little bit, being a little bit dour, maybe being a little too opinionated, maybe a little too like curmudgingly or, you know, I don't know, a little too proper, that type of thing. But it's nice, again, like when you kind of turn the mirror on yourself, you know, you're kind of making fun of yourself a little bit too. And maybe, you know, also with that, like knowing a big part as a rock band in the 70s, knowing a big part of your audience is going to be, The West is going to be America, right? The United States. So that's kind of fun. That's kind of a playful little thing about it. You know, I could see that speaking to your sensibilities too, because I know how you feel about history. And I know how you feel about England and Europe. I love the British, man. I really love the the English. They're the best. I can't wait to go to England.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be fun. We'll do that in 2023. And I, I think it's, we are, we're kin in some way, we share a a, a a language. In fact, our American English is older of older form of English than British English, which is so funny when you think about it, they say the Boston or like the New England accent is the most closely aligned accent to what things actually oh, yeah. sound like heard before you say that before. That's yeah, fascinating. The whole like the whole British accent as we know it is a newer phenomenon that that uh, wasn't going quite as strong back in the day. But yeah, so we are we are kin. We are kin. And I feel like we're basically the same country in some way we share. We there's so much cross-cultural exchange that we've been connected for a really long time. So I'm always interested in the British and how they're doing and what they're doing and their condition and their feelings and their generational angst and all, whatever else they're going through, because we, we all go through that as well. So is there anything else to take about Dark Side of the Moon that you wanted to talk about?
1: Yeah, they're they're important friends. You know, I just love the way everything culminates in this last song in Roger Waters eclipse, you know, that it feels like, you know, as we come out of brain damage into this last track, it, again, it was nice to listen to the whole album and get everything and juxtaposed against the, what come before and just get everything in order and really get a feel for the whole album. And again, you think of a concept album. So to get, you know, just to get it, get, take it all in at once. And it feels like we're ascending into this rousing finish and we've like, you know, we've arrived at, at the boss fight in not so many words. And if this was an album talking to us, an album imparting messages or telling us a story, we've come to that last part, those last pages of the book, right? And everything under the sun is in tune, but the sun is eclipsed by the moon. In other words, saying like, okay, we, we've hit you with all these messages about money and life and futility and the fleeting nature of time and all these kind of things. But... You know don't worry everything under everything under the sun is in tune and then one last sentence and it's like okay it ends up on an upbeat but the sun is eclipsed by the moon it's so brilliant to say like okay everything's positive but everything's and then to say everything's not positive bye you know and so in other (laughs) words like all the don't worry everything has still has that light shining on it but it doesn't see ya. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so... Yeah, it's great. It's brilliant. I mean, that's it really, is. like... And that's good writing when you could just end with a sentence like that and be like, what? Like, that's a mic drop moment. Agreed. And that's why... Like, that, that's never going to get old. That's never going to be behold... Oh, that's that's old hat. You know, that sounds like a specific era. Like, no. The nature of doing that, of that level of genius, is is timeless, you know? And to say, like it's all dark you know it is really comes down to like this pessimistic almost fatalistic sense of futility and that's really kind of what the album is saying but i love the fact that it goes out saying that but kind of in this playful way you know of of saying like you know it's all good no it's not and then like just that's it like that's the end and then of course it comes full circle with the we came in on the heartbeat we go out on the fading heartbeat the whole thing seemed like you know we just lived a life over 10 tracks that was life born life death it's brilliant but i that's what i really love is punctuated with that last sentence of almost telling us don't worry and then saying worry see ya you know what i mean (laughs) like that's that's, I mean, that's, I can't even categorize that as anything but a mic drop, a mic drop. Yeah, it's, form. it,
0: totally, it's a very Rod sterling kind is. of thing, in my opinion.
1: You know, and that's, that's, that's just the idea. Like, again, like, not just the craftsmanship, not just what they did in the studio and Al- Alan Parsons' genius and the band's genius and how musically gifted these guys are, but the idea at the center of it is... I think a big reason why we're still talking about it. The only other thing I realized, and Helene thought I was kind of wacky for for thinking this, but I thought it was kind of I thought it was kind of an interesting thing. If you look well, at I the so, the iconic album cover, right? Look at the iconic album cover, and it's very graphic, very flat, but it's that beam of white light going into the triangle, which you know the prism could be crystal, you know some sort of pyramid shape, and then. You know, the light's refracted and then it comes out as the multi-pronged rainbow, right? So you got this thin strip of white light going in and the rainbow coming out. Wouldn't have... And I love it. You know, it's interesting. And I, I think I heard Sturm, Storm Thurgeson talking about it, who's their longtime graphic designer and artist. I think the only other key artist really associated with Pink Floyd later on is Gerald Scarf with the wall. But Storm was there from the beginning. And he said he has a funny story where he had like seven album cover concepts that he designed for Dark Side, and he worked on it for like two months. And then he presented the band with the different concepts, and they were all like within 30 seconds, like that one. And he like to the point where he's like, did you guys even look at these other things? And they were all like to a man we were like, no, that one, like it's that one. But wouldn't it have been interesting if he flipped it when you look at the, the sort of pessimism of this album, wouldn't it have been cool for the rainbow to be going in and that slight faint stream of white light to be coming out
0: Yeah, or black totally. light
1: coming out, whatever. Right. You know what I mean? Like you, now you would take a brilliant concept and make it like ingenious. Why did no one, right? Does that make
0: sense to you? No, totally. I agree. I totally agree. Right? Just flip it.
1: Yeah. So yeah. that I think that was a that was a missed opportunity. But Helene's like, no, you're crazy. But I think Helene gets a little competitive with me. I think she wants to be the idea person in the relationship. Yeah, I understand
0: it. that. You can't. It's hard for two <laughs> idea people to be with each other. Well, Dave, hey, that was a fun and fruitful conversation about the 1973 Pink Floyd record, Dark Side of the Moon. Highly recommended. You can find it anywhere your music can be found. So, good. Um, forty-five it's, it's minutes
1: of your time, just just take it in. Right? Yeah, not, not even, even I mean, forty-five.
0: Yeah, not even it's it totally. Yeah, I I um, I listened to it in, la- in bed last night and then when I was working out this morning, I listened to it all the way through again. And it's just like, it's it's not the greatest working out music, but it's it's. uh, <laughs> But it's great, it's great to just listen to and just kind of tune into it while you're doing something like, again, put it on back on in the background if you want. But I, I think it's a good song to like clean or a good record to like clean to or something because you can kind of like engage with it. And you're not doing anything too mentally taxing. Yeah. And, you know, so something like that, you know, Dicking around your house or whatever, but definitely dicking around. De- Maybe listen to it while you're dicking around. Yeah, I said that a little aggressively. I didn't mean to. Um, Dave, let's end our show. Every episode of Knockback ends with a dad joke, so let's do it.
1: Okay, I don't know where this dad joke came from, but this needed to be in my life a lot earlier. Kyle, today my son asked, Can I have a bookmark? And I burst into tears. 12 years old, and he still doesn't know my name is Dagan.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty dumb it's pretty bad <laughs> but i'll take it i'll allow that all right uh, all right not bad for a saturday where'd you get that one you don't know where that one came from no no, no this, did it, for this that
1: didn't this didn't
0: come from one of our listeners this was just oh, okay. found
1: randomly online there's still some dad jokes out there even though we've done 600 episodes of knockback
0: people break. are always writing them i'm seeing them pop up left right and center like there's always something to be said in that style of joke there like really the, the is pun or the double entendre, which is basically what it is Absolutely, yeah so all right my friend well thank you for your time and thank you all out there for your love kindness and support of knockback and all things last stand we couldn't do it without you over on patreon merch uh youtube free feeds wherever you support us we we thank you and we will see you next time for more until then goodbye Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. Steven Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SL the FMA, Daniel Diamor, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Malachi Wall, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vader, Steven Interfield, SB, Griffin Queen, Nate Izod, Hargeet Chani, Albion, Logan Turner, Josh Sullinger, Madcats, Bloodborne Cart, Gunner 117, Andrew Roman, Jacob Donovan, Eduardo Perez, My Name is Mayo, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Christopher Nock, Zeno Adam, Sean Gulati, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Blake Nesbit, Sorta of Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Whiskey Sin, Zia Parrocks, Relentless. Rex, Drew Mullen, Christian R., Jad Rita, Patrick Skipper, Brian hernandez Espinosa, Remington Wilson, Dustin Graff, Zach Cohen, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Hallen-Rui, John Keegan, Michael Buffel, Dan Root, Asak Paredes, Talisman, Christopher Morgan, Andreas Wesling, Randall Holsey, Robbie Norman, Jim Bob 56, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, Kalique Azusa, Vornak, Surf the Void, Betty Ann Moriarty, h Trey Woodward, Antonio C., Jay Getter, Bjorn Campbell, Theo, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Jordan Gale, La Fortuna, John Zile, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Alex Lapierre, Saul Sixty Bal Eric Harden, Matt Flowers, Kinnems, Joseph Baker, Cruxes, Kendrick Callas, Jimmy Rodriguez, Caswell, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritch, Zach Allen, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Nayman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Dewey 108, Patrick Montgomery, D.B. Cooper, Richter 86, Todd B. Canning, Noah J. Stevens, Barrett Oswald, Christopher DeVayo, Chris Morton, Mark Liberto, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Grablick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Jordan Lewis, Organic Produce, Carlos Algarit, Dominic, Mike Menzel, James Hayes, Richard Hebert the Third, Miranda Grubba, Juch, Martin Beck, Joey Andrichek. Nathan R, Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, John Schultz, Tom Quinn, Anton K, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Pork and Beans, Tony Zuniga, Sean Patterson, Robbie Hensley, Sean Miller, Alex Cabrera, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kinniston, William O'Carroll, Jorge Powell, Verdict, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Roberson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Geo Corsi, Joey Gonholiker, Alex Monez, Gerald Pennington, Justin Payne, Justin Wagaman, Austin Riley, Paul Joyce, Alan Hopkins, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Low. Willis, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Ashley Carlson, Mary Scarson, Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Patrick Harper, MadMock Media, Bob Burkholz, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming. Swimsuit check, sunscreen check, phone charger check.